Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. I have, um, up to this point in the year, been opening the first hour of every day with the reading of Scripture. Um, today, I, I felt as if I needed to lead off the first hour with a brief commentary on the events of yesterday in Washington, D.C., and so I would encourage you to go and listen uh, to that commentary offered um, at the beginning of the first hour of Mornings with Carmen on the 7th of January, 2021. I open this hour with Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. Kingdoms totter. God utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. As I said yesterday, I say again today. I will say it again tomorrow. God is still God, and God is good, and we are his. Dr. Peter Kapsner is waiting in the wings. He and I are going to take up some of the headline news of the day and bring the mind of Christ to bear. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Dr. Peter Kapsner from the University of Northwestern St. Paul. Peter, welcome back. Thanks, Carmen. I know it's seven days after the new year, but this is the first time we've had a chance to chat, so happy new year. Happy new year, man. Happy new year. Yeah. Uh, It is the year of the Lord, 2021. We're going to live it as such. We're going to claim it as such, even if, I don't know, other people think it's the year of something else, but uh, it's the year of the Lord. It is indeed. And, you know, that's the thing. And, and I know you referenced it at the top of the hour here. That's the thing that doesn't change among the many things that that don't change and, and the truths to which you're speaking in the midst of the obvious chaos that's going on. And, and I think, Carmen, it, it just 
I think it's understandable that we we want to put our hope and our trust uh, in, in the men and women of this world. And, and on some level, we do want to uh, yield and submit to our leaders. And, and we obviously pray for them at all times, regardless of whether we agree or don't. But 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 to whom we give allegiance and to where we put our trust is something that I think gets misguided and misappropriated um, very easily. And again, for understandable reasons, but the events of the of the last 24 hours obviously reveal the fallacy of that in terms of trusting that uh, men and women in this world are going to be able to bring on their own or through maybe the political system or a business system or any earthly system, the kind of peace and shalom we're, we're looking for. Uh, it just, again, it, it turns into idolatry so quickly. And so, yes, indeed, let's claim again that this is the year of the Lord, as every year is the year of the Lord. And that's the one thing that won't change among many. Amen. Um, okay, so I have um, like 50 things written down <clears throat> for us to talk about today. Obviously. <laughs> Well, because I know I get to talk to you every week, and so I just make a list, and so that yeah, seems ridiculous. That. So, so maybe I should back. trot my list out over the course of the year instead of trying to trot it all out on the uh, first opportunity that we have to talk. Um, here's what has uh, captured my attention that I, I think I'd like for us to unpack over um, over time. Um, so the world keeps asking, like, what in the world is going on? And as Christians, I feel compelled um that we are supposed to answer with what in the word is mm. going on. So I've, I'm, my word for the year might be word. Uh, we just talked with Kathy Branzell at the end of the last hour about like having discerning, like a word for the year that God is pursuing you with. And so, um, and so the word, you know, obviously in that we, we would point to the scriptures, we would point to Jesus. Um, but we also, I think, understand what's happening in the world through the lens of the Word of God. I mean, that's, as Christians, sort of how this is supposed to work. So that led me to some observations about some words and the misappropriation of words or the redefinition of words in the world. And there's a couple of examples uh, just out of the U.S. Congress this particular week. Mm. Um, uh, the, the the new House rule... Um, Eliminating or banning gendered language of all kinds, um, no references to mother, um, and then this more extended conversation um, about, you know, the the use uh, in addition to the amen at the end of the prayer of the opening of Congress, you know, a woman, like amen yeah. and a woman, which I think it was intended as a joke, and it's just not very funny. So uh, comment, um, you know, walk walk around, wait around with me in this exploration of words. Yeah, I, I, you know, Carmen, and, and you sent me this list of words, too, and it was really compelling and intriguing. And, and I think um, it'll be an interesting treat to bark up, and not just this morning, but throughout the year, because language functions on a really interesting level. And it's something that I certainly, and, and maybe our listeners, I don't know if you, but I don't step back and think about maybe often enough that, you know, God created, as we know, the things in this world, and those things have an essential reality about them. He created them with an intended reality, an essential reality that uh, that he had in mind when bringing them to being. And, and as human beings, the way language functions, and so in the English language, we try to express or try to communicate or try to talk about those things that God has created through the lens of language. And, and English has 26 different characters that we try to put together in certain sequences and orders that, that are simply symbols. They're, they're just symbols for what it is that God has created from an essential 
kind of category, but we're what we're leaning into the idea that God did create something when we use the symbols of language in the ways we do to try to describe it and communicate and then walk in and live in the beautiful reality of God's kingdom as manifested in his creation. And of course, other languages can function on that same way, whether it's a more symbolic language of uh, some of the, the Eastern Asian countries, or it, it could be uh, again some non Arabic based languages, but but all language is symbolic and, and all it is is it's trying its best to point to that which is simply true. And if we're going to go ahead and remove the idea of that phrase, that which is simply true, then language becomes relatively meaningless on a lot of levels. It can begin to mean whatever you want it to mean. And, and I think you and I both appreciate the idea that our context kind of shapes the way that we understand the world and the way we understand the world is thus limited by our context. And so we know we're not going to hit all of the essential realities of God's creation. It's why we need our brothers and sisters globally to understand these things. But if we do away with categories of what's called essentialism or that there just simply are true things about this world, a tree is a tree, a dog is a dog, a cat is a cat, a, a woman is a woman, a man is a man. Now, we can talk about what all of that means. As soon as we start using language, just say, hey, it's going to mean whatever I want to mean. The, the entire reality around us begins to collapse and, and things move towards chaos and, and they move from God's beautiful order to just chaos where then uncertainty reigns and anxiety reigns and turmoil reigns. And I think we're actually, Carmen, starting to see some of the fruit of our willingness to adjust the language to be whatever we want it to be. And so the idea that you and I will at least in some attempt try to recapture the essentialism of language so that then we with our listeners can begin to talk about those things that are true and right and good and peace bringing and beautiful and, and all of that. I think it's a really necessary exercise that I simply don't talk about a lot. Essentialism, I'm adding that to the list, reality, trust, truth, peace, being, allegiance. I, I'm, our list is growing. I'm just letting you know. It is. It is. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. So, well, and, and quickly, yeah. just on that, you, you want, on one of the, as an example of this, the word love, right, has changed mm -hmm. its meaning from what biblical love is. And you and I have talked about this in the show. I won't dive into it today, but, but love has become this sort of twisted synonym with embrace and acceptance of that which is around you, regardless of that which is around you. You just, if you are a lover, you embrace and accept. If you are a hater, you resist and say maybe something is wrong with that. That has nothing to do with biblical love. And so we need to recapture what love is and recapture what man and woman and and sex and evil and woke and play, like all of these things need to make sense in light of the essentialism of God's kingdom. Yeah, I just made a note there. Um, so, yeah, Peter Kapsler and I are going to return to this conversation in just a moment. Um, what happened to the meaning of the word amen and, um, and what has happened to prayer when it gets used as a political tool? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So when the 117th Congress convened this week, uh, there was, as there always is, an opening prayer. Uh, this time, the opening prayer was uh, cleverly concluded, and, um, and the conclusion of the prayer was not only amen, but a woman. Now, mm. I, I have referenced this before. Um, here is, uh, let me read the final paragraph of Representative Emanuel Cleaver's prayer. Um, 
And dare I ask, O Lord, peace even in this chamber now and evermore. Um, We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, comma, Brahma, comma, the God known by many names, by many different faiths, Amen and a woman. Um, so the criticism that he's received, Peter, has been uh, for the walk-off, the amen and the a woman. Um, my concern is much more broad than that. Yeah. Um, what does it mean for prayer to um, be uh, not only featured in a political space, but then used for political purposes and for the God who is to be referenced in simply a, a litany of uh, of uh, of other gods. Yeah, yeah, that's. I, I mean, I got to tell you, the God Most High does not like being in a list with Brahma. That's no. just not. I mean, I. I mean, you want to offend God? Stick him in a list with something you know after which a cow is named. I just he's not yeah. going to like that. He's jealous uh. for his name. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it it so diminishes the God of heaven, you know, the magnitude of the God of heaven that he could know the hair on every person's head, you know, eight, nine billion strong and, and to diminish or to reduce in that way. And and this is the this is the product and the rippling impact of the I would say the collision of cultures that happened through the increase of mobility and technology early in the 2000s. And what I mean by that is it became really easy for people to travel or increasingly easy for people to travel globally. And then technology began to connect us to other cultures. And one of the big questions that began to emerge was religious pluralism, that that people thought about their religion in different ways globally. And that's something you and I, maybe in the when we were growing up, we would have read about in a book. We would have had maybe a week-long study of world religion or something. But suddenly we were clashing with many other cultures, West and East, and different gods and, and, and different ways in which people worship. And I was teaching pretty early in the Bible theology programs and the schools in which I was in my career at that time when religious pluralism really became the question. And the move that was made at that time was to do what just happened in the halls of Congress. It was to acknowledge that people worship different gods, but then the decision about that was not to evaluate and and analyze what's true and what's false, like you would have to do if you were analyzing whether Baal was actually in charge of Israel during the time of the Old Testament, or or whether the Roman emperor was actually uh, a divine being in the time of the New Testament. Uh, Instead of uh, analyzing that, we just sort of lumped all the gods together and basically said, well, Religion is sort of a wish fulfillment for people around the world. You worship differently. It's the same God, different names, kind of all the fad. And and I think, Carmen, the the scary part for me in that is that we, we still have the power of distinction. We grew up differently with a different understanding, but the young people growing up these days, they're growing up in an environment where that is sort of the accepted norm. That's what's being portrayed from these political pulpits, as it were. Uh, it certainly is what's being taught in schools. It it would be how young people often analyze the world is to say, hey, we'll serve Yahweh over here. Uh, we'll serve Jesus over here. We'll serve Raman over here. We'll serve Allah over here. It's all basically the same God. I can't emphasize enough how much that idea has taken root and thus the need for, I would say, the church or shepherds or leaders or teachers or whoever they may be 
to reestablish the God of heaven and not diminish him and lump him in with the rest uh, of that. And, and so we see it in our political system. And you and I can comment on it, and I'm sure many of our listeners can as well. It's the young people that uh, it, it, it gives me pause because they don't have the contrast. It's all they've ever known was to grow up. It's it's the, it's the same thing as the sexuality conversations you and I regularly have. We have contrast. <clears throat> My young people don't. They they just grow up assuming that genders are blurred. And so to recapture through words and language what's actually true is is really important. So I'm glad you teased that out because the A men and the A women, uh, women was. I think so fundamentally absurd that people can recognize that everybody that, caught it. Subtle. No, every right. There's a reason yeah. that everybody caught that part. Right. But the subtleties that you teased out just now are the important pieces of conversation here. All right. So uh, for those of you who are listening and not familiar with the God Brahma, um, Brahma is uh, Sanskrit. Um, and Brahma is the name that Hindus give to their understanding of creator God, also known um, as the self-born Lord of speech and creator of the four Vedas, one from each of Brahma's mouths. Um, yeah, this is, a, this is not the creator God. This no. is not uh, the the reality of the God who is and has always been and always will be. Um, but you see in, in the acknowledgement that the Hindus have of the desire to recognize something as creator, something that is preexistent and or self-born, and something that gives rise to speech, right? You see yes. in that evidence that um, there's... There's a desire to um, to identify uh, the God who they know exists. They've just misidentified him. I think that's exactly right. I, when you're when you're talking, Carmen, that phrase uh, that God has put eternity in the hearts uh, of mm. of men of mankind, and I think that eternity exists and it's going to find its expression as we long for that which is real and true, and and to give language to those things that are long that that we really long for. But if we then turn our hearts and our minds and our attention to any form of idolatry in this world, whether it's the political system or whether it is a false god, we end up moving towards bondage and we end up moving towards darkness and, and we end up moving towards an enslavement to sin. And I think that's why the importance of not just sugarcoating these kinds of things and being able to say, well, I, you know, that's just what they do. People, they go ahead and worship other kinds of gods. I, I was really compelled when I was studying at Edinburgh that one of my really good friends went and did his field research in India, and he did his field research for about six months among the Dalit caste or the Dalit tribe of the Hindu system, which is the lowest tribe uh, or caste within the Hindu system. And what he discovered in some of those places is how easily and readily the Dalit caste would identify with both being a Hindu and a Christian at the same time. And I was really stunned back then, it was 2006 or seven that somebody could take on a double identity of saying, I am both Hindu and I am Christian. But that is now some 13 years after I, I learned that from that part of the world, 
how, again, I think many people are sort of cobbling things together. I know my wife, Hallie, and I visited a woman down the street to pick up something, uh, some sort of rug off of one of those next door apps, right, that was for sale. And mm-hmm. we ended up in conversation with her, and she was pretty ready to say that she would consult both the God of Heaven as well as her local medium, which I didn't even know we had a local medium where I live. But uh, but she went ahead and would, and would consult the local medium. And so this blending together of faith, I, I think it's really important to talk about what is at risk if we decide to walk this way in our religious pluralism? What can we learn from the scriptures about when the Israelites worshiped lots of different gods to try to cover all the bases? How do we understand these things? I think there's some important conversations to be had here. Okay, dude, I just Googled it. Um, you've got like 16 mediums in a five mile proximity of where you are. <laughs> I'd, I'm I'd just saying, not, I, like, I, I don't, I don't know why you're not aware that this is happening in your community. Yeah. In Maplewood. Look at that. Holistic healers, know. angel wings, psychic readings, Runel's <laughs> psychic. I mean, on and on and on. Angelic inspirations, karmic, enchanting empress. I mean, it's long. It's long, man. That's, wow. That's incredible to me. I, I psychic mediums, spiritual readers. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, you're clearly not driving around enough. That's all I have to say. Wow. It goes on and on. There's a second page. I said 16. There's actually a second page. <laughs> stunning. Okay. Stunning. Okay. Actually, uh, that, you, we gotta, I know. It's just bananas. Okay. We got to leave it right there. You might have more mediums near you than churches, which might be a cause for another conversation on another day. But we got to go. It's, we're completely out of time. We've run over the break and break point. Peter, um, we'll talk again next week. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah. Sounds great. Great to hear your voice again, Carmen. Likewise. We'll be right back. What's going on at home these days? What's going on in your home? What's going on uh, in the home where we will spend all eternity? And how does our understanding of God's house, the place where we will spend all eternity together as brothers and sisters in Christ, how does our understanding of our eternal home affect the theology, both our espoused theology and our theology and practice in our homes here and now. So uh, you, you might have thought about your philosophy of ministry. You might have even thought about your philosophy of work. But have you thought about your theology of home? Theology of home is the subject of my next converse, conversation. Carrie Gress joins me. She is one of the authors of Theology of Home. The Spiritual Art of Homemaking, as well as the first in the series, uh, Theology of Home, Finding the Eternal in the Everyday. We'll be right back. This is Max Lucado. Our shepherd majors in restoring hope to the soul. Whether you are a lamb lost on a craggy ledge or a city slicker alone in a deep jungle, everything changes when your rescuer appears. Your loneliness diminishes because you have fellowship. Your despair decreases because you have vision. Your confusion begins to lift because you have direction. Now, you still haven't left the jungle. It hasn't changed, but you have. You have changed because your hope has been restored. And you have hope because you have met someone who can lead you out. Your good shepherd knows that you were not made for this place, so he has come to guide you out. He is the perfect one to do so. He has the right vision, and he urges you to lift your eyes from the jungle around you and to see the heaven above you. This is Max Lucado.
Joining me now, Dr. Carrie Gress. You can find her online at carriegress.com. You can also find her at theologyofhome.com. She's here to talk with us about the Theology of Home series, the first book, Finding the Eternal in the Everyday, and the newest uh, book, Theology of Home 2, The Spiritual Art of Homemaking. Carrie, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. I grew up with a mom who was uh, both a professional and a homemaker. Um, I suppose I am um, like that as well. Um, You are as well. Like you spend a lot of time doing things that we would consider work outside the home. And yet your emphasis and heart and passion is the work that we all do in the home. So talk with us about your passion for the home and homemaking, and then introduce us to this concept um, of the theology of the home. Sure. Um, You know, I think that one of the things I've seen in the culture today is that we have this tremendous love for the home in terms of making it gorgeous and spending time and renovations and all of those kinds of things. And yet the word homemaker is still really taboo. People are very uncomfortable with that term. Um, and yet, uh, you know, home doesn't make itself. So there has to be a homemaker involved. And um, so my co-author, Noel and I really wanted to reclaim that idea and just say, there's something gorgeous and such a gift in, in homemaking that we can give to those that we love. So the idea of, of theology of home then came about because I realized, you know, our homes are meant to be a real foretaste of heaven. Um, that's the idea. That's why we love them so much. That's why we want to make them into a sanctuary of peace and um, also make them a place where we can show others that we love them and we want to nourish them and give them with all these great things so that they can become who they're meant to be. And that's really what happens when we live in a godly home. And of course, we can see the opposite very, very easily, that they can also be a very, very much a foretaste of hell. So I I think this was really the idea was to help encourage women to both embrace this idea of homemaking, that this isn't some sort of negative, um, you know, reflection of who they are as women, but also see the the real vital importance in this um, in our lives as as Christians, that it's it's crucially, vitally important for both building up our families, but also helping our families come to know God in a very um, specific and special way through these material things that that make up our daily lives. I think there's just so many fundamental things that we learn, um, and we either learn them as accurately reflective of a home that is led by God, um, Mm -hmm. where God is the Father, um, where children are welcomed and celebrated and nurtured and disciplined and grow um, up in all ways into Christ, or we experience home, you know, in the most extreme extreme counter to that yeah. as a place where we're not safe, we're not taken care of, um, where abuse reigns, um, and where we we just want to flee, we want to get away from it. Talk mm-hmm. about um, the important role of um, of women in the making of the home, because homemaking is not just, as you have alluded to, it's not just about whether or not I know how to set a table. Like, that's important. I do that every night. I demand that the table be set. We don't sit down until it is. And we all sit down together every night around a table. Like, that's important to me because I want the next generation of people in my household to grow up valuing table fellowship because we're going to sit, you know, sit in the kingdom of heaven together at a table. Like, I want them to know how to do that now. Um, but talk about the role, the important role that 
uh, you know, that a wife, a mom, a woman plays in the making, the, the actual making of that home? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And this is what we go into much more deeply in the second book on um, the spiritual art of homemaking, uh, because we really look at what the culture has told us for the past 50 years. Um, I actually have another book on this topic in terms of how we've really um, undermined the gifts of women. And um, th- at, at the heart of it, really, we've been told that we're supposed to be powerful or we're supposed to be in control, that those are the two goals that women should have in their lives. And yet, Women are are incredibly unhappy. If you look at any of the statistics about um, women where you can sort of measure happiness, things like drug abuse and um, divorce rates, suicide numbers, uh, you know, all of those things reflect very clearly that women are, are unhappy today. And I, I think that underlining that is because the fact that we're not really using the gifts that we have been gifted with, um, which are, are very different. And I think at the heart of it is this desire to be fruitful, is fruitfulness. Now, that's a concept that's really hard to understand because we think of it merely in terms of just having children. Um, and yet all women are called to this. We're, we can see it reflected in our bodies, um, even the way our arms, our arms are bent slightly differently than men so that we can cradle a baby. Um, we obviously have wombs, we have different hips, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, so there's a spiritual element that our souls are crafted to give to others so that we can shelter others so that we can give them a life really and and help them become who God meant them uh, to become. Um, So all of that can happen in the home and the home is just another reflection really of the woman that lives in it. Um, It's just, uh, you know, on a much larger scale, but you can sort of see how um, the gifts that we have can be expressed there, whether it's in hospitality or like you're describing, you know, setting the dinner table um, for our children or educating them, you know, all of those kinds of things happen within that context. Um, so yeah, I think that these are, are vitally important, first of all, for us to start understanding who we are as women again. And this has been an amazing thing that I've seen in my work is just how we've, we spent so much time trying to make ourselves like men that we don't really understand what it means to be a woman anymore. Um, and so this has been a a beautiful part of this book is to really draw that out, um, both in the text, but also in, in the visuals, because we include pictures that I, I joke, you know, you're not supposed to see these kinds of pictures in, um, in the world today because they feature, you know, fathers who are engaged in a healthy, happy way. They, they include pictures of larger families, um, you, you know, things that, that we're told are, are not important anymore because of this power and control, um, model that we've been living under. Um, so this is what we're, we're doing is trying to help women understand who, who they are and how the home plays an essential role in that because it offers us the opportunity to to love those um, with the gifts of compassion and gentleness and tenderness and and hearing and listening you know all those kinds of things that we do so well because we're so um, focused on relationships um, and that doesn't mean that we can only do that in the home of course you know as you and I know well we also have to do that uh, in the workplace too but we don't need to shut those gifts off in the workplace either. So I'm talking with Carrie Grass. We are talking about uh, a series of books, Theology of Home, the latest of which, Theology of Home 2, The Spiritual Art of Homemaking. Um, she and I will return to this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with theologian Carrie Grass, we are talking about um, Theology of Home. You can actually find the website, theologyofhome.com. We're talking about her books as well. Um, Carrie, when I think about 
homemaking. Um, I think about um, a, an environment that is clean. I think about an environment that is welcoming. I think about an environment that is um, probably a little bit noisy. Um, there is a table set. It might smell like fresh baked bread. Um, and it's a lot of work. Like, talk about the the joy that is actually found in preparing our home to be a place of peace and productivity and fellowship and nurture. Like, because it, it is work. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's work. Um, I live and breathe that all day long <laughs> uh, with five children. Um, no, I, I think this is one of the interesting concepts also that we have really lost is this sense of um, of service. Um, we see it in our jobs and we feel satisfied by doing good work in our jobs, par- partially because we get a lot of feedback one way or another. Um, but in our homes, we're not going to get that from an infant. You know, they're not going to pat us on the back and say, you know, here's a bonus for the year. Um, but at the same time, what we do get in that service is really a sense of joy. And I think joy is one of those amazing concepts that isn't really tied to happiness and it can actually be tied a lot to suffering as well. Um, you can experience great joy even in the midst of suffering. And I know I experience this a lot, um, especially with newborns. Um, you know, you go through that phase where you've had the baby and how challenging that is and you're tired out of your mind. And yet there's this tremendous joy, um, that can, can exist in, in your life. And I think that that's sort of part of it is just recognizing that there's, there's, there can and should be a joy connected with it when we're, when we're doing things, um, with Christ in mind. Um, but we also have, um, the experience of really knowing that we're, we're gifting something to our children. We're bringing them order and beauty and, you know, all these things that they need to really flourish in their lives. And so I think that that's another element of it is seeing that, you know, we're not going to see instant results. This is going to be something that's much longer. And I, I think in our book, we tie a lot of this to this, the notion of gardening, because it really does feel like that. There's going to be those winter months where you just don't see anything, um, those different seasons that happen in our lives. And then you're going to see these other times where there's just incredible growth that happens. And you marvel at the child in front of you in terms of how much they've grown and the gifts that they have and how they're using them um, in the world. And so I, I think that that's the the important thing is to not get stuck in that, in that moment by moment, you know, resenting or feeling like I'm, this, what I'm doing isn't worth anything, but really looking at it from a much longer perspective and, and seeing it within that context, um, I, I think is vitally important to just keeping us going during those, those, you know, middle of the night nursing hours and things like that. So Carrie, um, I find I find several uh, threads here that I think I'd like uh, to have you weave together. There, there is this reality that um, mothering, uh, being being a stay-at-home mom in particular, um, is it can tend to be isolating, which I think then leads to um, moms attaching to their children in in ways that, as those kids grow up. Um, mm-hmm becomes more and more exposed, right? We might right. we might be overly attached to them or overly identified with them. But part of that is because we really do crave and need community and uh, and fellowship and relationship and um and sometimes it's it feels confined to the people that are inside the household. Can you just kind of address I know that's that's several threads that you um that you suss out in the book, but can you kind of pull all of that together for us? No, I think that that is a great point. And that's one of the challenges why it's so hard to to consider yourself a homemaker, because we are so isolated and we don't um, 
we don't have immediate community. We don't even have, you know, I don't, I don't have family members close by where I can just say, can you come over for 20 minutes and just let me. <laughs> These five nap. people are making me crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I just need a little <laughs> break. Um, and you know, even in my neighborhood, I live in an older neighborhood and there are very few families in it. And, um, so it, it does feel incredibly isolating. Um, and I think that that's part of the problem, even just looking at, you know, if we look at uh, objectively what the experts say, um, is what makes us happy. And part of that is having a sense of what we do is important, but also feeling like we're part of a team and we're engaged and we're growing and, you know, those pieces are not happening, happening. Um, so we do have in theology of home to a, a chapter about community and, and the importance of it. And I think we can also, it, it can be hard because we're sort of looking for that, um, you know, that bosom friend, that sort of soul kindred spirit or soulmate sometimes. Um, and sometimes we find that person and, and it works out wonderfully, but other times, you know, a lot of us live in very transient areas. Um, I know this was my experience is I would make friends and then they would move. Um, so I think that we also just have to have, a, you know, lowered expectation of the kind of friendships that we're going to have. That's not to say that we don't surround ourselves with quality people, but it doesn't, we don't always have to have the person that we connect with on such a, a deep level and is going to be our lifelong friend. Um, and some of that happens naturally because children are friends with children and, you know, schools and things like that. But yeah, I think absolutely this is something that we have to address head on because if we're, we are unhappy, some of it has to do with the fact that we don't have enough community around us. And certainly now that's the case um, more than ever because of the lockdowns and the, the COVID situation that we're dealing with. So yeah, I think it'd be really challenging um, to to deal with this one, but it's it's really vital to again, and this is where our prayer life comes in. It's just asking God to open the doors for us to to find the right people and to um, help us fill this need because it, it's an important one that we can't overlook. Yeah, there's a huge difference between um, isolation and solitude, or mm-hmm. loneliness and solitude. Like I can be alone and not be lonely. Um, mm-hmm. Can you can you can you touch on that? Because I think that that's going to be an important walk off for moms listening today. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think this is, you know, obviously all of this comes back to our prayer life and our relationship with God and, and all, all of the good things in our life are animated by God and are gifted to us by God. Um, so that that is obviously a, a fundamental place that even if we are in complete isolation, we we still won't be lonely because we can have this active relationship with God that we nourish, you know, every day through prayer. Um, but that, that doesn't always fill all the gaps too. And I think that that's something we have to be mindful of is that we're created to, to live in community. We're created to live in families. And so being mindful of both is, is really important, both for our mental health. But if that, if that prayer relationship isn't there, then it doesn't matter what else we do. Um, those are really the, the vital pieces to make sure that all the, the other pieces really fit together. So we've been talking with Carrie Gress. She is the uh, co-author along with Noelle. Am I saying her last name right? Maring? That's right. Yeah. Um, Noelle Maring. They are the co-authors of Theology of Home 2, The Spiritual Art of Homemaking. It's also loaded with just beautiful, beautiful photography. Um, Carrie, thank you for this. We're going to direct people uh, to your website, carriegress.com. We're going to also direct people to theologyofhome.com. Um, thank you for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right. Thank you for all of those of you who have been uh, encouraging me this morning. Uh, Here are some listener comments this morning. Um, 
uh, an encouragement to read Hosea 4, 1 and 2, an encouragement to read the book of Jude, an encouragement to read the seven, the letters to the seven churches at the opening of the book of Revelation. Wow. Uh, the people who are listening today are tilling the soil of the Word of God as, uh, as, as they are seeking to engage in the world that he so loves. Nothing could make me happier. Nothing could make me happier than uh, for you to be bringing the Scriptures to bear on the realities of life today. So uh, as a walk-off, let me read Hosea 4, 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land in which you live. There is only cursing and lying and murder and stealing and adultery. You're breaking all the bounds, and bloodshed follows after bloodshed. Uh, you and I live um, on the the side of, of the resurrection of Jesus, where we know the redemptive reality of the gospel. Um, we also know the will of God because he has made it known to us. And so let us be people who bring the gospel reality to bear in the land in which we live today. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.